This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. In the new year, I'm resolved to get podcast episodes to you with better frequency. You may notice I've waited until the second one to let you know about that. I'll consider this progress, however, and I appreciate you for listening. If you do enjoy Cultural Debris, I invite you to consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. There are different levels of support, and any support level is appreciated. Completely free is leaving a five-star rating and a positive review on your podcast app. It helps other folks find the podcast and also is much appreciated. You may have heard me mention that sometimes books arrive here at Cultural Debris HQ. Recently, a two-volume set of Edmund Purcell's 1895 edition of The Life of Cardinal Manning showed up. Manning was a contemporary and sometimes rival of John Henry Newman. Like Newman, Manning was a convert to Catholicism. He served as Archbishop of Westminster. This particular set had a letter pasted in on the flyleaf that was noted by the seller, but not dwelt upon. The letter had stated Archbishop's House, Westminster. Could it be, I wondered, the price and risk were small. I sent a photo to my Twitter friend and fellow bibliophile, Percy Christ, who is expert in such things, and he confirmed the letter was indeed in the hand of Cardinal Manning with his abbreviated signature. A fun bit of cultural debris to have. Our poem is from Robert Frost, who wrote many a poem at his farm in Vermont, a state that figures into this episode's interview. Frost moved from New Hampshire to Vermont. He wrote, to seek a better place to farm and especially grow apples. It's impossible to fault him for that. The poem is, Come In. As I came to the edge of the woods, thrush music, hark. Now if it was dusk outside, inside it was dark. Too dark in the woods for a bird by sleight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lived for one song more in a thrush's breast. Far in the pillared dark, thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I meant not even if asked. And I hadn't been. My guest is yet another Vermont farm owner, Raj Bakta. Raj is a true practitioner of the art of cultural debris. From founding one of the first premium whiskey brands, Whistle Pig, based out of Vermont of all places, to buying an actual college at auction, Raj is not one to limit himself. We talk about all of those things, but especially Raj and I discuss the oldest known spirit, Armagnac, and his discovery of a great horde of Armagnac at a chateau in France, with vintages dating back over a century and a half. Raj bought it all, and the chateau, and launched Bacta Spirits. We discuss everything from Armagnac to The Apprentice, 
and the guy who hosted it, but mostly Armagnac and a little bourbon. Join me as I talk with Raj Bhatta. Raj Bhakta, welcome to Cultural Debris. Great to be here, Alan. You are in the wilds of Vermont, I, I understand. Well, actually, I'm in the wilds of Florida right now. I'm down. Oh, the... you've you've switched. It's gotten cold in Vermont, and you've and you've snuck off to Florida. Yeah, for a couple of days. We've got a ranch down here, and I'm on a I'm on a cattle ranch in Florida. All right. Well, that's uh, that's an interesting place to be. Um, so how often do you get down to Florida? Uh, you know, not as much as I'd like, especially in the dead of winter coming out of Vermont. But, uh, <laughs> sure. You know, a couple times over the winter, for sure. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, you see the see the forecast of snow headed your way and it might be a good time to hop on the plane and, and while enjoy I, the cattle ranch, maybe. While I, while I don't mind the cold, uh, it's always nice you know to get a little bit of a break from it um absolutely uh it's it's fairly nice here in kentucky actually right now uh we're having a little bit of uh up and down getting cold then it'll warm back up and then it'll rain and get cold again so uh you know it's uh we've uh at the time of this recording we've not had uh We've really not had significant snow, but we probably won't be able to compete with uh, with Vermont anyway. So um, let's that's, hope not. That's okay. If it's, if it's snowing <laughs> more in Kentucky than than Vermont, then uh, something's wrong. Well, Vermont, uh, we we will allow Vermont to lead us in both snow accumulation and uh, maple syrup production. We're, we're and, content. And uh, and and yeah, we'll leave it at that. Those two. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have a uh, a resume that is uh, that is interesting and various. It it includes being on Donald Trump's Apprentice, running for Congress, starting Whistle Pig Rye, uh, which uh, is is probably the well. I, I will admit I, I do uh, I do remember the 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 season you were on with uh, with the Apprentice, but I had not put put you as a person together with uh, with Whistle Pig until. Later on, I guess you ran for Congress. Um, you uh, bought a college. Those are those are some pretty uh, some pretty different things. Yeah, they are. You know, I, my resume kind of uh, looks a little like uh, attention deficit disorder in in, uh, <laughs> in action. Well, and and you, uh, Lord willing, have have plenty of time to explore uh, explore other things. But right now, you are a purveyor of Armagnac. Uh, which sounds like a fun thing to do. Yes, it is. I'm, I was just getting ready to taste this 1996 uh, vintage that we've got uh, on the docket. Yeah, you uh, you all were kind enough to send me some samples of uh, some of your Armagnacs, and I have uh, in my hand right now a glass of uh, of a 1996 vintage Armagnac, which we can sip on and. Uh, Talk a little bit about what Armagnac is and uh, and how you got involved in it. It is sure. uh, it is a it's a it's a wonderful spirit, and the nose on this is really uh, is really strong. It's it's very nice. So um, 
I guess uh, first, Alan, on Armagnac. Armagnac, interestingly, is the oldest recorded spirit uh, on human record. Um, it goes back as a recorded category um, to the year 1310, when uh, a letter goes back from, um, I don't know exactly what his rank within the church was, but uh, let's call it a member of the clergy writes back, I think it was a prior, it was a priory, probably not a cardinal. Anyway, let's say it doesn't matter. He writes back <laughs> to the Pope in Rome that he's basically found some wonder juice uh, in Christendom in this Armagnac region. And the year, now I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, um, try to coax out of you a guess in what year this, this spirit is recorded. Recorded. So, uh, sp you know, spirits, of course, are, are uh, at least our knowledge of spirits is fairly late. Uh, yep. This was early. So we'll, you know, what, five, six hundred years ago or so? Okay, so, so I'm going to blow your socks off. The year is 1310. <laughs> That's a long time so, ago. So what is that? Uh, that's seven hundred years. That, ago. yeah, two hundred years almost before they uh, before they found out there was a uh, a hemisphere over here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Two hundred years before the discovery, uh, before Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right, that's that's pretty long. Uh, high Middle Ages, um, and the the Armagnac. Let's just start with Armagnac, and I'm going to say this right at the beginning. Bakta. Bakta, which is my last name, um, is a house of vintages. So I have bought spirits of all different varieties, whiskey, rum, uh, we're doing it tequila. Um, it's based on the concept of drinking vintage spirits, vintage being the concept of a specific, uh, or drinking is the word for drinking with a specific spirit from a specific vineyard or farm in a particular year. So you're familiar with this in the world of wine, vintage wine. Oh, the 2019 vintage was so great from Burgundy or what have you. The, the same thing exists, although it is not yet known, which is the duty of the brand and our you know job, uh, my job really at the end of the day is to bring to life the idea of drinking vintage spirits that is single year dissolute, which is for those of your listeners who are familiar with the concept of single barrel whiskey, uh, drinking vintage spirits is on a whole new level of rarity. Um, but going back to Armagnac, Armagnac, southwest corner of France, now delving into history for a moment, uh, south of France, or France was nearly conquered um, by the Moors, by the Muslims who had conquered uh, Spain. And I believe it was Char Charlemagne who created the Holy Roman Empire, really bringing you know the the lights back on after the Dark Ages in Europe. Um, his father defeats a Muslim army invading France in around 800, but the Muslims leave behind some good things um, in the world of distillation technology. Right? So they were creating perfumes and medicines. They had learned distillation from where I don't know. 
the and left, I guess, a few stills of some sort in the south of France. Julius Caesar brought um, wine in his during his conquest of Gaul 50 years before the birth of Christ. And um, voila, they start instead of distilling perfumes, they start distilling their wine. I guess is probably eight, nine hundred. Um, and the farmers find out that, hey, if we distill it, uh, not only does it pack a punch, right? The, from a percentage of alcohol perspective, but now we can put it into a barrel and this stuff preserves. So our wine goes bad, our grains go bad, but this is a way of kind of preserving um, that year's harvest, that vintage. Um, and so basically that's the history of Armagnac in a nutshell. The reason, the reason that Armagnac, why you say, I hear the crowd roar, why, why, why is Armagnac <laughs> not known? Tell us why. So Armagnac becomes unknown on the world stage, despite being the oldest spirits known to man, the first rec recorded spirits in, in, in human history. It's unknown because of accidents of history, uh, which entail geography uh, and culture. So from a geographic standpoint, unlike Cognac, which is connected to the river Garonne, which is connected to the main uh, southern port city in France of Bordeaux. Now, if you follow me on this next step, Bordeaux is conquered by the English during the Hundred Years' War. Bordeaux then becomes the main port of product going out to, pardon me, I'm going to puff my cigar one second. <laughs> Bordeaux becomes the main port of exports of wine from France. There are a lot of Dutch traders in there. There are a lot of English traders. This is the beginnings of, you know, a global trading um, network, which was starting, you know, in the 1400s and 1500s. They bring it to the rest of the world, the Dutch and the English. And they bring cognac instead of Armagnac because Armagnac is not connected to the Garonne directly. Mm. So they are both, they're geographically isolated and culturally Armagnac is a rich agricultural region the Gascons, as they are known, are not, I mean, these are not uh, like the Gujaratis, I'm half Indian, or, or the Jews, or, you know, peoples who have, you know, spread across the world in search of um, opportunity. Um, they're local, they're, uh, what's, what's a good word for that, Alan? I don't want to say xenophobic, that's not, not the right word, but they're um, insular. What else? Yeah, is per per parochial, perhaps. We'll call it parochial since the perfect word is not coming to me. Um, they're not outward looking necessarily. They're not out to you know hustle their wares in the global stage. So geography and culture, which is part informed by their full bellies, it's a rich agricultural reason they don't need to hustle. Um, basically is the reason that we are, you know, we know cognac. Uh, but we don't know Armagnac. And the last little tidbit is one of the further reasons that we know Cognac and not Armagnac the, is that during this Hundred Year Wars period, France was an area of opportunity, right? So if you were the fourth son of an English duke, let's say, your older brother, you know, because of primogenitor inherits it's all, inherits the realm, inherits the dukedom. 
the second brother may go off to the church or the military and the same thing with the third brother of the church or the military but the fourth one the family lacks the connections etc the positions aren't open he's got to really figure it out so he would go off in this time to something you know to france's overseas empire call it whatever you want the or england's overseas possessions and he would try to you know create opportunity in the very rich regions uh of france and that's a brand you know you may be familiar with a brand called hennessy that's how a brand like hennessy starts in france mm-hmm. um so i hope that wasn't too long but uh, the the history no, I, covered I, nearly a, a millennia right yeah i mean you've got a millennia to cover there so uh i mean armagnac um i i first found out about armagnac a few years ago um through bourbon people who were kind of exploring and then i because it, it really is a spirit that's different from bourbon i mean it's a it's a brandy rather than than a whiskey but i think that it uh, there's a lot of appeal to a bourbon drinker in in armagnac because uh, there's that the, the kind of richness there's an oakiness to it uh from the aging um but you can get much, much older vintages, as we will talk about as we go along here, much, much older vintages than are possible with bourbon, because if you, well, bourbon just wouldn't, simply wouldn't make it that long, but it would be nothing but oak if you, uh, if you, if you tried it, I think. Uh, But Armagnac uh, just seems to keep getting better. Yeah, that's right. So, um, much of the flavor in bourbon comes from the wood. Right. And that is the same thing with Armagnac. And the difference is in bourbon, you have new American oak. It goes into new barrels by law, essentially. The, and because of the Kentucky, um, the Kentucky climate, right? Continental American climate, you have these big swings of temperature. So you have this expansion right. and contraction in a new barrel. A barrel acts like a tea bag, right? The first time you you use a tea bag, it's going to deliver the most flavor, and then it slowly dilutes over time. Contrast that aging um, construct from bourbon to Armagnac. In Armagnac, while it may go into new oak, it will frequently go into older oak. The barrels are much bigger. The climate is much more stable. So the bigger the barrel, the slower the aging, the more temperate or even the climate, the slower the expansion and contraction, and therefore the aging in the barrel. You basically have a bourbon is good by year five, even year four. I wouldn't drink younger than that. And you really don't want to drink beyond 15 years in general in bourbon. The, um, it's not after 15 years, you're picking up too much wood. So a great, you know, prime age for me for bourbon is about 10 years. The, so we have a 2013 bourbon coming out under the Bacta label. The, but that's, that's middle. I think that in, to me, it's prime 15 in certain cases. Great. Beyond that, you know, you're really just buying an age statement. Now contrast that with Armagnac. Armagnac begins to hit its prime at about 20 years, right? And um, our oldest uh, vintage, which is 1946, and that's, what is that, uh, you know, pushing 80 years uh, in oak, a, a different barrels, so you rebarrel it, 
but you look and you follow a good seller, a good seller in Armagnac, you're tasting your Armagnacs and you're saying, okay, this is getting woody enough. I'm going to put this in a bigger, older barrel. We still want to add some elements of age, but we want to slow it down. It adds nuance, complexity, smoothness, but our, our longest um, vintage that's been continuously wood is 1946. And, you know, instead of 15 years, you're, you're aging nearly 80. Right. Last piece here is that normally between 35 and 70 years, you'll pull it out of wood and put it into glass, into this thing called a bonbon. And it sits in that glass and slowly mellows in glass. So, You know, one of the things that attracted me to Armagnac, which I, I will admit that that sort of the obscurity of it is something that I liked, but, and this, this falls into that a little bit is that unlike cognac, which has been largely industrialized, um, cognac or Armagnac is still dominated by sort of small mom and pop vineyard distillers. Um, yeah. And it's, that's it's really, a, it's, kind a, it's a picture. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's a fairy no, tale picture of craft, like what we imagined, and this is what blew me away, was Whistlepig, you know, craft whiskey. I bought whiskey from Canada, we barreled it, and then began to build our distillery in, uh, in Vermont. But in general, almost 90% of the bourbon that you drink, or our whiskey to drink, is really created in huge industrial factories. And even our quote unquote craft spirits, most of those are produced in industrial distilleries and I'm very, very well aware of this. Now I went over to Armagnac and I'm like, my God, this is like storybook. You have wood burning stills, wood burning stills that are mobile and go through the countryside to these small little 20, 30, 40, 50 acre farms that have been in the same family for generations and generations. I'm like, this is, this is, this is like a, this is like a fairy tale of craft. And then I, when I found the, the Chateau that we, that we ended up acquiring, they had every single vintage going back to 1868. So my mind was just literally blown. Um, well, let, was, let me, uh, let me interject there and, and pause you because I do, that is a story that I, I want to talk to you about and, and have you share in some detail, but let's, Let's throw in a new vintage of, uh, of from our samples. I have some 1982. Uh, this was uh, this was early on in the in the uh, Reagan administration. So you're really starting to get some age uh, on this on this Armagnac. The, uh, the the 96 was, by the way, very good. Uh, just quite quite tasty. Very viscous. You could really see the legs in the glass. Uh, it came in at what 100 around 120 proof this one is lower at a little over what 106 i think yep yeah um and uh and the the nose on this one is a little more mellow than than we got on the on the 96 and of course some of that may be proof too but uh i think it is just a little more mellow yeah in 82 right the the this is um going decently back into into history. Um, we'll talk about the world in 1982 in a second. The, but what you begin to notice in the 82 on the nose is you begin to get um, some of your like 
fig and um, you know stone fruits, um, mm-hmm. a bit of what you know, a, a, a bit of um, what is the pie that they give everybody in England? Um, uh, like a fruit cake, almost like a rich mm-hmm. fruit cake uh, yeah. nose. And this to me is, is one of my favorite vintages, uh, 82. Um, it's Armagnac yeah, it's, at a great age, 40 years old. A lot of history, it's really a lot of depth, good. extremely rich, extremely complex, layers and layers. And what I love about it, this is a 40 year, you can't even drink a 40 year old, and you can get a 40 year old scotch for thousands of dollars. Oh, world. yeah, uh, ridiculously expensive. Yeah. And that's one of the things, I mean, Armagnac, and of course, you know, Bacta, of course, is a is a premium brand. It's not cheap, but relative to something like Scotch, you can get um, you can get vintages. Uh, I mean, almost at pennies on the dollar. Again, not saying that it's cheap to begin with, but you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars for with with that kind of aged Scotch. And even if you're looking back at you know d- what we call dusties in bourbon. If you go back to something from eight that was distilled in '82, even if it was bottled at a reasonable age, you know it's very expensive uh, very these days expensive. to uh, thousands yeah, of dollars. Thousands and thousands, right? And 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 get this, I mean, you can go online now and buy a bottle of 1962 Armagnac for something in the five to six hundred dollar range. You know, four to six hundred dollar range. Of Bacta. I mean, I don't know exactly what the price is. Let's call it 600. We'll use a high number. The, but that 60 year old spirit that goes right. back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and JFK's presidency for six cents, well, you can't find anything like that in the world. And it tastes good, right? It tastes, it tastes beyond good. It tastes fantastic. If you're talking about price comparison, if you move over to say something like Japanese whiskey, where you're talking, you're going to start talking real money real fast. Um, Armagnac is really right now. Uh, I mean, probably the best dollar to taste value in spirits, I would imagine. By far, and that's really what I look for. You know, I like finding. So I, I can say this without jumping around too much. I, I while it may sound self-serving, the you know I, I'm not worried about lunch, and so I think it makes it perhaps a pinch more sincere when I say I truly recommend that everyone who's got the cash go online and buy two of every single vintage that we have at the current prices. Keep one, enjoy, you know, one, one to stock, one to rock. And the bottle that you keep with you sit on for, I don't know whether it's five years or 15 years, but you'll, you'll more than make your money back and pay for the bottle that you drank and profit basically from from drinking it the the for those business minded among you if you're just a connoisseur into spirits armagnac is the is the gem um for me certainly in my own very extensive collection of spirits of all different categories you know the armagnac are the are the crown jewels um that we're trying to bring to life and I will also throw in, so we'll, we'll do a little infomercial for you here, since you're sharing your time and expertise with us. You do have sample packs that people can, that people can purchase. Like I, I received these very kindly, these uh, 
these small, uh, I guess, 50 milliliter samples from you all to try some of these. But you can buy little packs of those at a at a very reasonable price, um, and and a little can go a long way on on tasting those to get an idea of what it tastes like. That's correct. You know, for like a hundred dollars, you can get a spirit that goes. You know, that we have a blend which we'll taste later that goes from eighteen sixty eight to nineteen seventy. So basically, from the age of Lincoln to you know the space age for a hundred bucks. Yeah, um, and we're gonna and we're gonna talk. We're gonna taste that here a little bit um, because it, it really is amazing. But that that leads us into the story of you finding this this sort of um, dragon's horde of Armagnac um, <laughs> in in Gascony, uh, and and this is the the foundation for for Bach to Spirit. So tell me. And my listeners hear uh, the story of that because it's fascinating. Yeah. So the year is 2018. It's the summer of 2018. Um, my wife, um, thank God, becomes pregnant with uh, baby number four. But um, let's say she wasn't initially that excited because it wasn't according to the you know plans or whatever. The and um, this, of course, is all my fault. And. Um, <laughs> The, the, so she kind of shoes me off with a broom, literally. And I had shipped over two Cadillacs to Europe, a CTS-V, which is the sports car version, because if I ever hit the Autobahn, which I did that summer, I wanted to be able to smoke anybody in a Porsche, an American car, um, which I did do. And the other one was, uh, was an Escalade. So I was just looking to blend and disappear like I do wherever I go. <laughs> right, so. exactly. The, and, um, so I hop in, I hop in the car, you know, shoot out of the house. I hop in the car and drive across France, beautiful drive, uh, you know, out of the Alps, pick a friend up in Lyon, which worked out perfectly. And then drove across the central massif and then up and down, uh, and land into Armagnac. And I find out that there is this guy whose family has been collecting the best stuff since, you know, a long while. And this is the guy that I have to talk to and that we heard he might be interested in selling, but he's a little bit of an unusual guy. The, so, you know, quirky. The, so I head off to his place, kind of call him up and let him know if he'd receive me. And he says, yes. And I head over there and I'm driving the Escalade. And, um, and you know this Be Our Guest song from Beauty and the Beast? Oh, yes. I, do. Guest, I, I have, da- I have so. daughters, so I, I know about it. Okay, so <laughs> I have kids, I have four kids, and it's this in the soundtrack in the car. The song comes on. I love the song. I crank the music. I'm singing it at the top of my lungs, just following kind of blindly the computer that, that's telling me where to go. The, and I pull into the chateau, but not really paying attention because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm singing wildly and getting into the song. And the, the, but I notice now that I'm in this courtyard and I see this guy, you know, like looking at me like I'm a madman, like invading his quiet, beautiful chateau courtyard with my massive American, you know, Escalade blasting some song and singing at the top of my lungs, which is reverberating off the walls, right? So this is now an 
echo chamber or the rapper sound system of the Cadillac bouncing off this entire courtyard. And, and I'm like, Oh no, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, so I turn the car off and it takes like five seconds for the echo to stop bouncing off the walls of the entire thing. And you can see this kind of French aristocrat guy going, Oh, no, 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 no. I am not selling my arm and yet to this man. And, uh, <laughs> And so this is the first, you know, introduction that I have to the guy, the first impression that I've made of this loud gush, you know, American, oddly named Raj Bakta. And, um, and then he, you know, he's nice and great, you know, European good manners, all that sort of stuff. The uh, well-bred, although maybe they were inbred by this time, you know, why he was you know, interested in selling this stuff. The, and kind of cracking out those up, but that's a side story. The, the, and he shows me his sellers and I've been all around the world at this point. You know, you know, I'm buying spirits. I've bought a lot of rum. I've bought a lot of whiskey. I've bought a lot of scotch. I've bought a lot of Irish. You name it. I've been there. I was, I was, I have, I've, I've done it in terms of purchasing and looking at spirits for a while. And I go into this man's cellar, medieval sellers. Right? And he has every single vintage going back to 1868 in some quantity and my jaw drops. Right? And, and I also no, I, it would be amazing. It was amazing. And, and as my jaw drops, he kind of looks over and sees me. I realize I had blown my poker face. <laughs> the, the, and, you know, the kind of lust was in my eye or my awe at the very least. The was 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 you know there, and that was the beginning of. I tasted it. I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. I had history. This was time in a bottle and in a romantic region of the world of this long forgotten spirit. And um, the businessman, the romantic, the historian within me, all of them, you know, were were in chorus together, saying, "Let's make this happen." Okay, and. Um, and it took a couple of years because he was kind of nuts. In a, you know, I wouldn't speak badly of him, but three times he like walked away from full handshake deals with pictures and everything, and that was really, really, really annoying. Um, and uh, but we managed to get the deal done. And how you ask did this guy even have this, right? Because this is a, how how does this stuff even exist? Because now think about it. I mean, 1868. What is it? 150 years ago. But everything pre 1940. Right? France has been invaded three times between 1868 and 1940. And the first thing an invading army does, right, is the soldiers. You know, they they, they go out and they basically drink a lot, right? And then they terrorize. Right. Yeah, they find they find the existing alcohol. Mm-hmm. And they go on a tear. The and so the fact that this didn't get looted or drank or sold or conveyed in some way was a monumental, you know, a miracle, really. It's not to not to go on too long on the thing, but you know, Goering in particular, who is um, Hitler's air marshal. The is deeply, you know, the really kind of acquisitive man, deeply acquisitive man, wanted all these treasures of France. And he would send his Luftwaffe pilots in search of stashes, hidden stashes of really old spirit, because the old spirit, you can see a, a, a barn that has old spirit in it because it gets 
blackened on the outside, but there's this, you know, um, something eats the, the, the ethanol vapor and leaves a black you know, soot on the side of the building. Yeah, so we we, yeah, we, ha we have that in Kentucky on the at distilleries where they have mm -hmm. uh, rick houses that you get the that black uh, fungus everywhere. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. So he's got his scout pilots looking out for these stashes. So these barrels went into the countryside, got buried in hay or underground or whatever, and sent to Ant, you know, the Madelines. The and it just never got found. So I was just started in 1868 i mean my god abraham lincoln's uh, just uh, three years in the grave so that's how i found it and it took persistence and you know back and forth for over two years but the family this was the point that i was going to make the family these guys were not primarily businessmen they had a shipping company and that was the source of the family fortune they were primarily acquirers as an investment of the best artifacts and holders of it. So um, Arvid just Bachwizdovich's are the best by far as that I found in the world because in many other houses, these artifacts that got left, they got left because nobody wanted them. It, it, not in all cases, but in many cases. In our case, they were acquired because they were the best and held because they were the best and they were the investment while the guy was a pain in their, their butt uh, to deal with. Um, I'm grateful to him and to his family and to his history because he was able to hold on to these things. And we're really, I view myself as a steward uh, of, of history and the lessons of time that these are, that these Armagnacs contain and represent. It really is an incredible story, and um, you know this. Uh, our our French gentleman, uh, regardless of how quirky he may be, or or maybe we might say because of it, uh, there is much to be uh, uh, much to be applauded there for him yes. essentially doing what you're talking about. It's sort of stewarding this, and and seeing to it that it was preserved in you know, in the face of. Uh, uh, long odds, I guess. Cataclysms, cataclysms of all sorts. You know, going back to yeah, Fr France hasn't been the best place to sort of to to keep things uh, safe over the past century or so. Yeah, a rich, coveted land next to a militarily superior, you know, neighbor. All right, I want to. Uh, I'm going to throw in a, a, a third sample here, and this one, of course, it has some uh, significance to me because it is one that I specifically requested when I was asked um, about these sorts of things, and that is the 1970 vintage. And the most important thing that happened that year was that I was born. Amen. <laughs> so this is a this is a spirit that was distilled. The same year that I uh, I came into the world, which is a, an incredible thing for me to contemplate. When were you born? March of 1970. So uh, uh, this would have been distilled. This would have been from the harvest of 1969. It would have come in off the fields in October, November. It would have begun to be distilled in November, December of 1969. And distillation would have run through March of uh -huh. 1970. So 
There is a possibility that this very vintage that we're tasting was distilled and put into a barrel in on potentially the very day you were born. It's, it's entirely possible. March March twelfth, nineteen seventy. If listeners want to send cards and presents, but um, but this is uh, this is uh, a, a very uh, a very tasty uh, sample here. This uh, it, so we we drop down in proof again. We're down to uh, down to ninety proof, but uh, you know that's still that's still a very uh, a very pleasant proof for the bourbon drinker. Um, you know that sort of eagle rare territory there, uh, but it's it's got a it's it's still very rich. Uh, again, uh, it, it doesn't taste watered down at all. It tastes very um, very potent. Which sometimes with with whiskeys you get to that proof, and you start well. You know they've added a lot of water. It doesn't really have the same um, vitality. But this uh, right. But this this very much does. Yeah, so we've never had wide water. This is just you know, 52 years worth of angel share, right? You, you lose some alcohol every year, and that's why we started in 1996 at close to a buck 20 in proof, and now we're down to 90. This is just part of what makes this such an incredible, you know, uh, deal. You're buying barrel-proof spirit 1970, and I don't know the, the price on this, but it's, you know, in the Three to four hundred dollar range, something like that. The mm-hmm. uh, maybe four fifty, but um, here you have, you know, <laughs> history in a bottle which tastes great. Now I'll tell this now to your whiskey drinker audience. You know, I, I am a whiskey drinker. I have been a whiskey drinker. You know, I created America's premier uh, luxury whiskey company. I'm a big fan of whiskey. Love whiskey. I have nothing bad to say about whiskey. The but as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, Armagnac costs five times as much to produce. Sometimes you do get what you pay for, but really the core matter is that taste. The the no none of us, you know, speaking or listening right now took our first sip of whether it was whiskey or vodka or you name it, and said, "Wow, that's great," you know. Or maybe the one, maybe there were a couple, but they're you know, if things have gone well, they're in the AA now. The, 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 this is an acquired taste the, because we like it. We like it over time with coffee. The, but um, what I exhort uh, people to do is acquire a taste for the best. And I'm just going to review the economics of this because not just are we talking about a 50-year-old spirit versus a, 50, a 50-year-old armyac versus a 50-year-old whiskey and what a relative deal it is and how amazing that you can actually commune with history like this. The, but it costs five times as much to produce because the lay down of an acre of corn, you know, is in the five, 600 bucks region. And I'm harvesting within six months that I'm turning into whiskey because we operate farms which make whiskey as well as, as, as army actually, as well as brandies. Now, an acre of grapes, which create this, it's a white wine that you make army make out of. It costs twenty-five thousand dollars. So what is that? Uh, five into twenty-five. The the fifty times as much to put the crop into the ground. And instead of six months for first harvest, I'm three years or four years from first harvest. And I have to maintain pruning the vines, which is very labor intensive as well as highly productive. 
curious. Um, the, the, and then it sits in a barrel for much longer. So layer upon layer upon layer of rarity and, uh, and excellence. And when you taste it for the first time, you know, an Armagnac, you're going to, it tastes different than bourbon. And our first taste, it, 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 just, it may be curious. In fact, you may not even really like it that much. But what I do tell you is that if you leave it open and let, for example, the 82 rest, which I've just taken a taste of, and you go back to it because you have to decant this, like especially really anything 20 years older, just let it open up a little bit, let it rest for a half an hour. So for example, Alan, if you go back and taste anything that you poured earlier, it's gonna taste uh, better. Um, you know, you're in a different, you will acquire a taste for Armagnac. And once you go, you know, there you're going to find your five or six year old bourbon much less interesting than you did before. And I'm gonna make a final point here. Like I began, I, I first started drinking scotch and I stopped drinking scotch because I wanted to drink an American product. I'm the first generation of American. I really love the country. Again, I think that if we don't, you know, support producing in America, we're, you know, it's not a good idea. The, and it's a good idea to make things here. So we have Bakta as a brand, we have over 1200 acres in Vermont where we're growing the grapes that we will produce in American brandy that we will release that I hope will exceed even the best expect the best quality of our, of our army. So we're also doing, um, production here in a traditional wood fire land still in Vermont. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. When when you have a, a bourbon that is hyper age, I know you were talking about you get past fifteen years and you're kind of touch and go. There are bourbons that will that is selected well can can be good above 15 years. They're very, they're rare and they're very expensive, but you can really start getting at that point, kind of that above 15 year range. If you get a good one, you can get some, some Armagnac type notes off of that. Um, but with Armagnac, you get them immediately, right? Cause it's Armagnac. You, you get, you get that richness that you really have to shoot for, with bourbon, with Armagnac, it's just kind of there. Correct. The, the, well, that's really what we're all tasting is very old stuff. That's coming right. from wood. That wood is coming from the earth. And so you're getting these flavors of really the earth itself, which take the form of vanilla. Um, and some of these you get almost like a cocoa uh, note. You get basically all the different what's in the ground itself begins to come out and express itself in different ways. The soil, you get these notes of banana in some cases, the, but, um, that's coming out of the earth turned into wood, translating itself into and communing with the, with the, with the spirit in the barrel. Right. So it's, and, and, you know, while I'm sure this is, can all be understood in scientific terms in a lab, the, what makes one vintage of one harvest 
that has been in a particular barrel different from another, you know, I haven't figured it out. The, and it's, uh, you know, it's mysterious and, and sublime. Well, and from a bourbon standpoint, again, this is where uh, most of my knowledge, such as it is. And by the uh, way, you're very, you're but, very knowledgeable about bourbon, just, just, just listening to you. Thank you very much. But uh, there's there have been a lot of um, been a lot of new experimentation in the past few years with different woods, um, and French oak being one of those. Uh, Maker's Mark, of course, came out with Maker's Forty Six uh, that that is influenced by French oak, and you get a different impact on on the distillate from French oak than you do from American white oak. Um, and uh, a lot of different, uh, you know, Brazilian woods, even Japanese woods, that that bring a different terroir to to the aging. Um, that is, of course, with Armagnac, it's innate to that process. Obviously, they're using what's there, and it is. And I think one of the endearing features of it is that it is a hyper local uh, product. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're tasting the forests that were beginning, that were begun to put down in the reign of Louis the 14th, um, that, uh, that were built when France was going to give England a real, uh, race for its money. And on the high seas, they, they got their butt kicked pretty badly every time they went out for it, but but they, they laid down, and you have to give them credit for this, they laid down, laid down history's most organized state-sponsored forests uh, that, that began in you know, the 17th century. So a lot of the, as we get ready to taste the 50-year-old, a lot of the barrels, in fact, a lot of the barrels are very old in our shape. The, and the trees would have been planted in the 18th and 19th uh, century that were, you know, that were, so it's been, when you connect it to the barrel, of course, you get the routine right now, but I really love history and, and, and the richness of time. Um, and then that territory in France um, has, is really, you know, magical in that way. And the history very deep. And uh, there's no other spirits category in the world that really can come anywhere close to touching Armagnac in terms of, you know, depth and richness in, in history. It's, it's almost an accident in miracle history that it even uh, exists, this old stuff, and that it's never been discovered, never been promoted really on the global stage. I've got a couple of quotes I'm going to throw at you. One, one by you, one by a friend of, of uh, yours, uh, your attorney friend, Leo Gibson. And this is from an article I read uh, that was talking about buy, you're buying the college, which I do want to talk about uh, because that also ties into what you're doing with Armagnac and other spirits. But your friend Leo Gibson says, Raj has always been interested in taking old and broken things, whether it's a hotel in Vail or the farm or rye whiskey. He finds these forgotten gems and tries to bring them back to life. So this is that that's a statement that warms my cultural debris heart. I will, I will have to say. Um, and then uh, in the same article uh, you, you've got a, 
a longer quote that leads into this, but you say, I've always been attracted to the revival of good old things, whether it's a city or Armagnac or rye whiskey, or in this case, a college campus. It makes me happy. Well, I will tell you that makes me happy too. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that mindset and about you buying a college. Yeah, let's do it. Um, well, that's a lot. That's, that's, that's a big opening line. But I guess it goes back to me being a kid, um, whether it was on trips as a kid that I was fortunate enough uh, to go on to Europe. I remember when I was like 11 or 12 years old and I was looking at the old royal palace ruins in Lisbon, Portugal, where the kings used to live. And I would, you know, imagine I was always into history then being, you know, King John the Mariner and looking at my fleets going off to the new world, and, you know. <laughs> creating basically discovery at the, the, the ocean going there's and Diaz and these guys and that sort of in my bones from a young age and we're being in Philadelphia which was uh, you know America one of America's very oldest cities and driving by and looking at these neighborhoods or great old factory complexes that had fallen into ruin and you know my spirit just yearned to see them back to life and, you know, thriving. So I love bringing things back and I hate decay. Um, so um, it, I look for that, that, to weave that into, you know, my life. So I feel like I've, you know, fulfilled my destiny. Back <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that's, you know, we talked about sort of your, your disparate resume, but I think at the same time, there's a there's a theme that connects it all, and that kind of leads us to this purchase of a college. This is the sort of thing that uh, my online Twitter friends and I dream about occasionally. Some um, you know some town in Scotland will be for sale, or some uh, New England uh, college will go under and be for sale. And that's exactly what happened for you. Is that there was a New England college for sale, and you bought it. So tell, yeah. uh, tell, tell me how that happened. Well, here's how it happened. So I was, I was, you know, I sold Whistlepig Whiskey in 2019. I was kind of, uh, long story short, didn't have a winner that year too. And I was yearning to get back at the next thing and in this kind of like manic phase to do it again. And Bakta was selling well. We were, you know, our first barrel moved overnight online. And then I was kind of struck by this, I was living in this kind of realm of, okay, so now you go and you create, I don't mean to poo-poo achievement of business, I'm all about it, but I was like, okay, imagine you create the next greatest thing, and then you create the next greatest thing after that, and you become the greatest titan of the spirits industry ever to have existed in the history of man. <laughs> the, and then you drop dead in the grave like everybody else, and you know, you Yes, the Gaul said we're going to taste the Gaul, right? The graveyards of the world are full of indispensable men. That's and right. So Memento the, Mori. The, right. <laughs> and with these things rattling around in my head in the middle of, you know, the pandemic mania, the, the recent, you know, kind of lunacy, the, the, I was thinking, well, what am I going to do? What am I going to do that's good? Um, with the fact that I have, you know, thank God I'm a rich man. I can, I can, I can, I can do things. 
hey, what are you going to do that's good and that serves the interest of your country and your faith? Um, and while, you know, these things I'm contemplating, this college campus basically fails and comes up for sale 30 miles down the road. And that's an interesting canvas to try to begin painting a picture of revival on. And I was drawn to it and it's beautiful in the rolling hills of Vermont with a clear river running through the back. And, you know, a beautiful motto of the school, 200 years old, going back to the 1830s, that says, Lux Fiat, let there be light. And I think this is an age where we really need the light and the light is truth. And I think that our top universities have, I mean, they are not teaching truth, right? And the kids, I mean, it's almost, it's almost like pray for the poor souls that they devour by Harvard. They um, are, are deeply off base. And here's an opportunity to make things again, to teach, to learn, to create, as I, as I said before. And, you know, something to dedicate, a good thing to dedicate your life to. And take the talents and the knowledge that you have. Uh, knowledge of the spirits business. You happen to be in a spirits category that is deep and rich in history, and there are a lot of lessons to learn in that. And put it into practice and bringing the town back to life. And that's how I ended up there in the room with my five year old daughter bidding, you know, on a college campus in rural Vermont. Well, and what you're doing with it is not, you're not reestablishing a traditional liberal arts college, but you're, you're making it a, from, from what I have read, uh, you're, you're using it, uh, as, as sort of, uh, I guess, Bacta Spirits HQ, but also, um, a spirits library, also a learning center, also a resort, all of those things. Uh, but education is, is part of that. Right. So, look, the, 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 a lot of people talk about sustainability, environmental sustainability, educational sustainability, agricultural sustainability. In fact, the motto of the school, Green Mountain College, which goes under, was first in sustainability. And, well, the fact that it goes up for auction and bankrupt was <laughs> not first in sustainability. Alas. The, but sustainability, sustainability, at least to be practical in this world, you need to be profitable. <laughs> you, need to, you need an economic engine alive for, to sustain the efforts that you're going to make. And so job one is to make the thing economically viable. To make it economically viable, we're bringing the spirits business um, and integrating that into the campus under the um, motto find your spirit, find your spirit may come up and say, well, I really love the 1970 because it tastes great. I was born in 1970 and played in the top hits of 1985 when I was 15 years old. I love the idea. You find your spirit, you love it, you have a good time, you found your spirit. The planet at a deeper level when we're bringing people in from the bar, restaurant, and liquor distributor community, a lot of, you know, we're, we're, we do a three-day program, the anchors of which are revelry, which is the first day we have a great party. The, then the next day is about relaxation. So we get together in nature and enjoy it, chill, relax, and recover. The create a little bit, 
um, do blending and the like. And then the third day, it's revival, where we do some interesting breathing exercises and some sauna and cold dunks, ice dunks that kind of leave people leave you feeling like a like a million bucks. And that's the first, let's call it spirits resort component, which is currently in operation, not for the general public yet. That will come soon as we develop the hotel, which is currently under the extensive permitting process requirements that we want. The, uh, but we'll soon have that uh, alive. Uh, but the deeper idea uh, is to create this as a place where people reignite their, or find their spirit, not just in the drink basis, but in you know the, the the immaterial side, the the spiritual side, where we reignite a can-do positive mentality required to really get anything done. Because you look where you're going, like we're all looking down and oh, things are going to shit. And, you know, it's not as good as it was before, and you know we're headed to the dustbin of history. Because if that's what we're thinking, that's where we're looking. That's where we will go. So we need to reset our gaze to the broad sunlit uplands and into the stars, which will you know, result in a brighter future. And in a weird way, it's through a spirits company um, that we're trying to build a, I don't know, a little world, which is good and true and productive and vibrant um, and truly sustainable. Yeah, I think that that as as you pointed out with the uh, the ironic uh, motto of of the college, um, that what we are seeing right now is that the the I guess second half of the twentieth century, post World War II uh, college model itself is turning out not to be sustainable. It's it's floundering and it's failing, and we're seeing these. It's right. We're seeing these small liberal arts colleges go under. And, and one of the things that, of course, hastened that was, uh, was the COVID pandemic, the lockdowns and uh, closing campuses and so forth. And once you close those things, it, it might be hard to get people to come back. And I think they're experiencing that. But just financially, it's it's difficult. Um, and it's difficult to justify people going to these to these colleges at the exorbitant rates that they charge yeah, in turn to make a, not a lot of money right. uh, in, in your career. So, um, and, and, you know, and beyond that, the things that they learn, pardon the interruption and the things that they oh, learn will actually retard their abilities to actually be happy, productive citizens. So it's not just the expense of going into it and the lack of return, right. it's the actual damage, the damage they will receive while they're at these schools. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's, that's absolutely true as well. Well, I, uh, I look forward to, um, to seeing what you do. It's quite a, it's quite a vision. And, uh, one of, uh, I was reading through your bio, one of the, one of the quotes I saw, uh, from you was that, that you, you want to help revitalize rural areas. And of course, um, I, I, I this is part of doing that really. Yeah, so most of this country is in fact rural. I mean, you fly over America, you go from New York to LA, the, we're mostly, the vast majority of the physical landmass of this country is rural. We're 
a lot of people do. And uh, if we don't keep those areas alive and vibrant in community, we're just going to have a continuation of drift of the young to the cities, which I don't know is altogether a necessarily good thing. The, and what I'm certain is not a good thing is the takeover of all the land of large, you know, agro-industrial groups that kill community and, um, you know, the fabric of society. So if we are kind of planting good seeds and keeping alive what remains of rural community and, and life in America, we, I hope to be part of like the revival truly of of these areas that are you know suffering and they kind of these rural towns in america used to look somewhat like philadelphia's inner city bombed out sections did in the 80s right i mean the 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 it's kind of the decay has moved from inner cities to rural communities and it's devastating oh absolutely the area where i grew up of course i'm um I'm a real live hillbilly. I grew up in Eastern Kentucky. And so it, it wasn't great to begin with, but um, the economy where I grew up was based largely on coal mining and tobacco growing. And those have not been growth industries uh, in the past. <laughs> well, during my lifetime. So, um, and it's not been good. And, you know, we have to have a vision for, for shifting that. And um, that's going to be, that's not going to be one size fits all. Of course, we're talking about localities. Uh, different localities are going to have different solutions, but uh, I think that we can we can have different uh, visions of approach that that maybe can can light a fire in those ways. But it's going to be hard. And it's going to be difficult because it's it's shifting uh, a trend that's been going on for what 150 years. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's not, you're not going to reverse that, uh, quickly by any means. Let's, um, let's, let's move back to Armagnac because we have the biggie here, uh, that, that, uh, I've been, I've been kind of holding off on, which is the, the Bach to 50, but, but 50 doesn't even tell the full story of it because the 50 just goes back to, uh, to 1970, uh, again, uh, an excellent year. But uh, with the with the Armagnac that is in this blend, because this was this is a blend of different years, uh, it goes back well beyond uh, 1970. And I'll let you tell the story of that. Sure. So, <clears throat> Alan, what we are drinking right now is barrel 29 of 38. And I'm going to take a moment there to explain. There are only 38 barrels of Bacta 50 ever released. And this is our inaugural release. Um, this is truly time and history in a bottle. Each of these 38 barrels are named after great characters, men and women in history. This one uh, honoring the memory of Charles de Gaulle. Um, and the, the story of these 38 are that they are bookmarked, each one, by two vintages. All of them have some 1868, all of them have some 1970, but in between there are different vintages. So what we are going to taste is a blend of the following vintages, which is mind numbing when you think about it. 1868, 1888, 
Say that again. I'm sorry. The big event of 1962. Uh, well, I guess I, I don't know which one you have in mind, but the Cuban uh, Missile Crisis. Yes, I was going to say. I was going to say, uh, from an American standpoint, Cuba was what was going on back then. So, so this is this is the kind of thing that brings history to life for me. There's a Russian sub-commander named Vasily Arkhipov, who really we all owe our lives to. The, yes. Uh, the, the sub is coming over to the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, but, you know, uh, the Russians are putting uh, nuclear missiles in Cuba. This is a violation of the Monroe Doctrine and a whole bunch of other things. And Kennedy says no. Um, the Russians say yes. They're bringing over more. There's a game of brinkmanship going on. The Russians are sending a flotilla with new, you know, uh, 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 nukes over to, to set up in Cuba. They've got a sub going out ahead. The American commander has orders.
orders not to allow these, this thing to pass. The Russians have orders to go through. The, the, but if they come under, do not shoot, but if you are shot at, return fire. The Americans see the Russians coming close to the line, exactly what line it is, I can't recall. But we start, start dropping depth charges, okay? The Russians at the, are now in this sub at the very end of their oxygen supplies. The, they've been in a high stress situation for a long time. And they're now coming under, you know, they don't know whether the Americans are just trying to get them to surface, which is what the objective was, or whether they're legitimately under attack. But they're, uh, they have nuclear-tipped torpedoes, which would vaporize the American fleet that's giving them the warning shots that they don't know are warning shots. So normally it's a two-key system to shoot the missiles off, but in this case it's a three-key system because of the heightened you know, sensitivity of the situation, i.e. Armageddon. The, and the sub-commander says, okay, we're under attack, let's shoot the nuclear-tipped missile or a, a torpedo. The political officer uh, on the submarine says, okay, he turns the key. There's a one guy on the sub, the third guy, whose approval is also required. The, he says no. And, said, and, and, and imagine, you're on a sub, you're being hit with depth charges. The, you don't know whether you're under attack. You're at the end of your oxygen supplies. The commander of the sub wants to shoot. The political officer wants to shoot. And you say no. Imagine the pressure on that person. Oh, the, uh, unbelievable. Unbelievable pressure in every sense of the word. The, he won't fire, and 20 minutes later, the Russians get a communicated turn around and back off. But at that moment, if in that 20-minute period, the fate of the world was literally into the hands of one man named Vasily Arkhipov, and to that Russian son of a bitch we celebrate in this 1962 vintage, the, or the that's in this, in, in De Gaulle, I love that piece of history. And, you know, that's what really makes this special from a historical standpoint. From a taste standpoint, this is history in a bottle. If we allow this to open up a little bit, it will, if you buy one of these, pour it, let it open. So if you take a taste now, Alan, um, and then take a taste in a little bit, you'll notice an evolving uh, spirit. But this is the history of the modern world in a single glass. Um, finished in a scotch cask, so for those of you who might be cigar drinkers, the nothing pairs better with a cigar, um, which I'm currently smoking. And a um, little kiss of uh, perfect for a scotch drinker. And this yeah, you definitely get you get a little smokiness um, out of this for sure. This is a very it's not like anything you'll have ever tasted before. Yeah, it, it's it's really amazing, and uh, I mean, there's just it's a richness. There's a richness to it. it it's it's difficult to describe, and it, and it is it is incredible that that this goes back all the way to you know the the post American Civil War era uh, is when is when this was uh, the distillate was initially laid down which is hard it's hard to comprehend really that that's something that you can actually have and taste yeah 
In America, post-Civil War, Queen Victoria is relatively early in her reign. Napoleon III is Emperor of France. The What I love to think about it, you're familiar with, you know that poem, If by Kipling, if you've been dreaming about mm, it. Yes. West, mm-hmm. There's a line in there that really reverberates uh, for me. And it's, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat both those imposters just the same. You think you're on top of the world, you're not. You think you're you're that or not, you're not. And the story of Napoleon III, which is the 1868, really brings that home to me. Because in 1868, things are going great. He's the emperor of the the greatest state in Europe. He's the arbiter of European affairs. The grants is booming. Everything's terrific. But two years later, he's captured. Right? Like, not, not, you don't think, you don't, as you're an emperor, a king, or a president, you lose a battle, you don't get captured, right? You lost a battle. But this guy actually right. got captured. You know, he didn't lose a battle, he was captured by the Germans, who then go in, take Paris, and proclaim the German Empire from Versailles, right? From the halls of French power. So that. That really brings that home to life. Or the later vintages in a lot of these different barrels, and you can go online and see some different barrels available. The you have different vintages, like you many of them have pieces of the 1930s in them. There's 1939 and some of 1946. And the other one I like to bring up is the 1939 vintage that French mothers would have been in sight of the barrels literally that were here, were watching their boys march off to war, um, thinking it's gonna be like World War One. they half of them are gonna die. The, but by 1946, which is another vintage in many of these different uh, barrels, most of them are back home and safe and sound. So, you know, it's never as good as we think it is and it's never as bad as we you know, one of one of the things it, it does speak to uh, as well, very powerfully, is is just the tradition and continuity of of the process. Because all of these things were going on, the Germans are coming in, yet there they are making Armagnac like they always did. You know, um, it, it it wasn't it certainly was not the best of times, and yet they continue on, at least in that aspect, living this normal part of their lives and doing what uh, they had done and their parents had done and their grandparents had done. And that is to, to make Armagnac and to, uh, and to put it away. And, and here it is for us. What a, you know, what a legacy that they left. It is incredible, right? It, it shows you you know, the ups and downs of history and the resilience of mankind. And as you say, the continuity of life, life goes on. So you have, uh, you have mentioned that, of course, uh, Bach to Spirits is not just Armagnac, and uh, you've, you've teased that there may be a bourbon coming up in 2023. What, uh, what do we have to look forward to there? We have an absolutely spectacular vintage of bourbon, 2013. Um, it's finishing, it's, uh, it's being finished right now in 
uh, the casks that um, held the 50 year old, which we just tasted in it, which is a smoked army. It's an Isla Kissed Armagnac barrel. So it is a barrel that contained both um, a peated uh, scotch and this blended variable Armagnacs. The 2013 bourbon is being put into those barrels uh, to absorb a little bit of history and the flavor, and that product is coming out, um, I don't know, February of 2023, it'll begin to become available. I love whiskey, this tastes terrific. Um, you know, it's young by comparison to the RBX, but from a taste profile for your bourbon drinkers, I'm a rye drinker, I'm a bourbon drinker, I'm a whiskey drinker. This is the best whiskey I've ever tasted. I'm biased, but uh, sincere nevertheless. Well, I look forward to uh, to trying that. It sounds intriguing. And as you well know, the, the, the whiskey and bourbon market is a crowded one, but this certainly seems, uh, seems like a unique take. It sure is. But you, uh, you have some experience with, uh, with dealing with whiskey, so I figure you, uh, you know what you're doing. Well, really, this was born, this 2013 uh, release was, you know, Whistlepig has a high-end bottle called the Boss Hog. Mm -hmm. And that Boss Hog was based on the idea, or Boss Hog, of finishing rye in certain casks. And the best one that we ever put out that won best spirit in the world in a couple of different competitions was rye whiskey finished in an Armagnac cask. That's actually what got me, got my eyes open to Armagnac to begin with. The, but the, so that idea of finishing the two, this idea of 2013 being finished in the cask came from that. And the result with a high rye bourbon is just as sublime. And so I guess we're putting everything that we know about whiskey uh, together with everything that we know about Armagnac uh, to create what I feel is the greatest you know, whiskey vintage on the market. Well, it will only be a couple thousand uh, cases, so very small um, and ephemeral because once the 2013 vintage is gone, it's gone. And then I go to this idea of vintages, whether it is a bourbon or an Armagnac or a rum, drink vintage spirits, because that rep, that's, that's a single vintage from a single distillery of a single year that they're never going to make more of. So right. if you have a 10 year old bottle of uh, whatever spirit, pick it, you know, the, the, if you have a vintage of that, you literally have that year, that time in the bottle that you don't have if it's, you know, just an age statement spirit. So you know, I have to ask you a, a vitally important question about the bourbon. Is it Kentucky bourbon? Uh, I, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint on this one. The, <laughs> the, the, it, is, it, is, it is actually a count of two barrels that we put together of an Indiana, which is from a distillery called MGP. Mm -hmm. Right on the Kentucky border, on the other side oh, yes. of the Ohio River. It's the, not Kentucky, but you can see it from there. You can see it from Kentucky. That's right. <laughs> the and uh, and the Tennessee. Uh, okay. Rice. Well, I I suspect I know uh, I know that distillery as well. Um, 
and I I will attest that that there can be good distillate uh, from outside of Kentucky. Places. Well, yeah, it can happen. <laughs> uh, they're both, you know, they're both close enough to Kentucky that it's probably a little bit of the aura uh, that's uh, <laughs> that it, that's extending. But uh, and I will I will say uh, older MGP can be very very good. So uh, so I won't cast stones. Uh, won't cast stones there. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm very, very open. <laughs> well, I, I I look forward uh, nonetheless. Uh, and I, I, I may have uh, a fair amount of MGP in various forms around the house anyway. So, um, so I, I do look forward uh, when that uh, when that comes out to to trying that, and I'm sure that it will be uh, that it will be unique. And I have enjoyed having uh, having these these drinks and walk through history with you. Uh, I, I can't leave however can't leave you without at least asking if you have any great apprentice or donald trump stories um before we uh, before we part oh my god alan i mean that's that's a tough one the <laughs> I, have, I have i have a lot of very uh interesting memorable Donald Trump stories, but they're not really fit for. Oh, you know, they're not. Public, they're not suitable. Uh, well, I, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I will say this. This is this is largely meant to be, you know, a a family friendly uh, podcast. So I, I can, uh, I can give understand. Me, give me the but, pass. Give me the pass. <laughs> okay, I, I will. I will do so. Um, but uh, uh, being on The Apprentice had to be uh, had to be a, a hugely important uh, time in your life and and uh you know and had to have had a lot of influence on what happened afterwards no the apprentice was a really really interesting experience on many different levels in fact the way i got onto the show was uh, uh i was in the family business which was hotels and i didn't really enjoy it and i was looking with a peace with honor exit from the family business and the apprentice was actually a perfect opportunity for me to kind of go do something without looking like I ran. Um, and, uh, also my love wife was really no good in Vail. I was living in Colorado in the middle of nowhere. I oh, was not in the middle of nowhere, but I mean, in Vail is a, a ski town where there are like seven guys to every three girls. So romantically things weren't going too well. The, and this was a solution of both that because you're famous on TV. It's good for, uh, leading, uh, members of the opposite sex. And, uh, it got me out of the family business, but on the show, uh, it was a really fascinating, uh, cultural experience, personal experience where you had this group of people. Now the apprentice replaced friends, right? This was the friends was the biggest show on TV and the apprentice show was, was the biggest show on TV, but in, 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 in contrast with friends, right? These are trained actors. You had a bunch of people who got pulled out of various, you know, normal, I guess, uh, existences, quote unquote, the, and now you're famous and on the biggest show on TV. So the most interesting thing to me was seeing how people reacted, uh, to this intense fame, um, short lived, but intense fame that that came, you know, as the show released. And 
you know, it was a very mixed bag in that department. A lot of people kind of lost their minds and uh, regained it, and some lost their minds and didn't, and some people didn't get affected much by it at all. The and that was really it was cool. It was interesting, you know, to go from in your life, right, to go from working and redeveloping a hotel in Colorado to being dropped into the center of the biggest TV show uh, on earth was a really, it was, it was interesting. It was uh, exhilarating. You meet a whole bunch of interesting people, a really cool experience at the end of the day. And seeing Trump, what I can say about, what I can say about Trump is he really is exactly as he seems. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's no, uh, I mean, he's definitely an egocentric kind of guy and everybody gets that. The, and that may be the, the most defining characteristic of him, but, um, and he can be calculated in the things that he's doing. Um, but it's, he's exactly who he, you know, pretends to be. There's no, yeah. you know. Right or wrong, he's an authentic character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I think that's I think that's that's a fair assessment. It seems so, um, and had to be had to be an exciting time of life. But you've kept the excitement going, and uh, and I'm certain that uh, being on cultural debris ranks high on the excitement meter for you. Very high, Alan. <laughs> I do appreciate you being on. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, you know, it's, uh, this is the uh, the first podcast that I've done uh, where I've gotten to sip uh, Armagnac along with uh, with my guests. And, and I probably need to do this more often, if, if, uh, if anything. It's, it's, uh, it's been a pleasurable experience, to be sure. And I hope we can do it again sometime. I look forward to it. It's been a great conversation. I enjoyed it very much, and I wish you well.